Welcome to the Medical Liability Minute. I'm your host, Jeff Siegel, founder and CEO of Medical Justice. We're joined today by our general counsel, Mike Sakopoulos. Thanks for joining us today, Mike. Oh, thank you so much for having me. We're going to look at Ripped from the Headlines, our series where we look at issues and challenges other practices had so you don't become the next protagonist in our ongoing series of Ripped from the Headlines. Sounds like a good start, right, Mike? Let's, let's, uh, let's jump into the fact pattern on this one. All right. This is one that was published on Medscape um, by Wayne Guglielmo. He did an excellent job in terms of cataloging the facts, and it's a prostate case. And I'm just quoting here. It's difficult enough when a patient's prostate is removed because of cancer. Well, I think we can all agree with that. But it's another thing altogether when the prostate is removed because of a medical error, as was reported on CBS Philadelphia. So the patient was named Eric Spangs, S-P-A-N-G-S, and he lives in southeastern Pennsylvania. Uh, apparently, a screening test indicated an elevation, uh, elevation in prostate-specific antigen, PSA. He then had a biopsy of the prostate, which appeared to indicate cancer. Um, over time, though, the patient learned there had been an error. The tissue section used in the microscopic diagnosis had come from the biopsy specimen of a different patient. So Spanks himself did not actually have cancer. Uh-oh. Or Scooby-Doo would say rut-row, right? Rut-row. Okay. So um, ordinarily, such news would be a cause for celebration, meaning that, hey, look, there's no cancer. Great news. But this was not a normal situation. Following this diagnosis, microscopic diagnosis, he then underwent a radical laparoscopic prostatectomy at a local hospital. Um, the fact that he was now judged to be cancer-free was of little consolation, especially because of the effects of his surgery complications, which included urinary leakage and erectile dysfunction. So I think one could argue that this was net negative. Yes, cancer-free, but he never had cancer in the first place, but he was left with some residual issues. It is hard to declare victory here, isn't it? It is. So what did Spank say? He said, it's devastated me emotionally and physically. Um, it's also been emotionally devastating for his wife. And by the way, the couple has five children. So um, he's represented by counsel, Aaron Freewild, who filed lawsuit against the healthcare system um, where the hospital belongs, as well as the area's largest urological practice. So the Spangs wish to caution other patients not to make the same mistake they did. They failed to get a second opinion from an oncology specialist, apparently as recommended by American Cancer Society. He apparently did receive a second opinion from someone at the same urologic practice, but the practice and I'm just quoting here, does not specialize in oncology. And then finally, uh, an act of benevolence here. The Spang's also worried about the patient who received the false negative biopsy result because apparently the slides were switched. Um, but the Spang's were reassured that the patient, that that patient would be properly notified of his actual cancer status. So that patient uh, presumably was diagnosed initially with a all coast is clear, no cancer, and then somebody's got to say, hey, we screwed up. Uh, you actually do have cancer. So you've got two victims here, not just one victim. This is um, 
This is a challenging case. I mean, you're trying to make a problem less problematic, um, less bad. Um, and, you know, there's definitely litigation. So I, I, the first thing is who's responsible, the doctor, the lab, both. I mean, typically, until facts are sorted out, everybody who has a name on the chart is sued. I mean, isn't that your experience with professional liability, at least with seasoned um, med mal attorneys, their their job is not to let potential uh, litigants free uh, or potential defendants free. I mean, they'll sort it out after depositions and let the chips fall where they may. That's a, a problem of the system, right? You're afraid not to name someone that could have some degree of liability because time may expire and you wouldn't be able to add them in later on. So the fail safe uh, for many attorneys is just to name everyone, um, stop the clock from running, and then you can drop people out as the case progresses and you learn facts. Uh, not so good for those that get swept up in this litigation, but that's the basis behind it. We've also seen it where less, less seasoned, less experienced plaintiff attorneys will sue the one person they think may be liable only to learn later on that that person was not liable. It was due to the negligence of somebody else, but the clock ran out. Um, and it's maddening for that non-negligent single defendant in the crosshair saying, I didn't do anything wrong. It was, you know, John Doe that did everything wrong. I'm so mad at everyone. I can't believe that the attorney didn't sue the proper person. And it's true. I mean, I think it would be maddening to be the wrong person accused. It, it also does a disservice to the to the patient, to the plaintiff in this particular case, to have uh, let the the negligent person off scot free. I suppose that if you're the patient, you can always uh, you can always sue your lawyer for legal malpractice. But getting getting an award in a legal malpractice case is harder than winning an award in a medical negligence case, correct, Mike? Absolutely. You essentially have to prove two cases. Uh -huh. One that you would have won to begin with under the, the med mal case, uh, had the right person been named, that it was really a situation that you would have recovered. And then, again, the case against the attorney that he or she uh, performed below the standard of, of care. So it's kind of two wrapped in one. Now, we, we should mention that sometimes people are added into to litigation and later dropped just to get some free testimony out of them uh, with the hopes that people start pointing fingers and blaming and saying, I didn't do anything wrong. Dr. So-and-so made a mistake. And let me tell you exactly what type of mistake Dr. So-and-so made. Um, and of course, getting expert witness testimony from a plaintiff's point of view is an expensive endeavor. And to the extent you can get people pointing fingers at one another and giving you that testimony, that's another reason why um, cases are loaded up up front with uh, all kinds of defendants. Yeah, the proverbial circular firing squad, right? Where, right? where you sue everyone in the chart and you know someone's guilty or liable. You don't know which one. <clears throat> you just sit on the sidelines, get some popcorn, and just assume it will be sorted uh, out by itself. You know, it's interesting that um, in if, if, er if everybody in the chart is named, the question for many doctors is that, well, when will I be let out? How long will this take? And the 
the life the life cycle of a professional negligence case is typically this lawsuits are filed and then the first uh, round of depositions are conducted against the plaintiff and the defendant so that's when you the doctor you the defendant are being auditioned for your continuing role as a defendant and that's one audition you you well you'd like to pass and fail you want to do a great job but you want to make sure that they don't keep you in the role uh, of defendant but that's typically a go no go uh, they're trying to get information just to see precisely what your role in that case was in addition they're trying to see how you perform as a, an expert do you have good jury appeal can you communicate effectively are you easy to rile up can the lawyer get under your skin pretty rapidly are you the type of person that would get out of bed at two in the morning to help this particular patient or you're the type of doctor that would be dismissive and c communicate uh, ineffectively um, with uh, with a patient and their family that that's all part of the the um, the audition that is going on uh, right here and if you if you do a great job on the audition you may very well uh, be dismissed in which case uh, good for you then uh, they can go back about your life so people have asked have often said well look um, I had to defend this case I had to prepare I had to go to a deposition I was out of the office and couldn't uh, see patients I was out of the operating room I was not making money uh, I know that I've you know I'm not a defendant any longer but this has really cost me thousands of dollars I want my money back and to what to that you say what Mike um, I feel your pain, but good luck because it's extraordinarily difficult <laughs> to be able to uh, to recoup those uh, dollars. And um, there are other other ways uh, to have some accountability, but the court system is not very well structured. If you've been sued and there was some theoretical basis for the lawsuit when it was filed, only later to find out that that basis really didn't exist and you're dismissed. Uh, you don't really have the ability to collect money from the other side. Yeah, I would argue if you are dismissed soon after a case is filed, that generally should be construed as good news. I would take out the champagne, celebrate, and not dwell on too much, not dwell too much over it. The past is the past. Time to move on. Hopefully, you won't be in the crosshairs again. So let's get back to the case at issue here. The patient had an elevated uh, PSA, prostate-specific antigen. antigen and the biopsy was performed, subsequently uh, indicated cancer. I think first things first, you, you really need to make sure the name on the lab report matches your patient. To repeat, make sure the name on the lab report matches your patient. I, I know I'm just stating the obvious, but also make sure the clinical description matches. Sometimes there'll be a clue that there's been a screw up, that something does not fit. And if there's any doubt, I would just call uh, the lab, you know, I think if it's a an abnormal blood result, it's easy enough to draw a sample of blood one more time. Not so easy to do a second biopsy. By the way, um, while we're recording this, I am um, I'm going to make a confession here. I had a screening colonoscopy, and a um, small polyp was removed, less than four millimeters. So this was done almost three weeks ago. And um, 
I still have not received the results of the biopsy yet. I was wow. reassured that it would be um, that it would be sent in the mail. Um, we're coming up on Thanksgiving holidays, so the places may be slowing down. But I also um, had feedback from the institution stating that don't assume no news is uh, good news. So I'm not assuming that. I've tried calling again, but it's the same type of thing. If something doesn't fit, you know, if if the biopsy doesn't match uh, the clinical description, doesn't match the name, doesn't match the report, you got to call. But with a biopsy, it's hard to do a do-over. With blood, you can do it. Uh, but when you're dealing with a tissue specimen, it can be very uh, difficult. So, can, um, can yeah. we agree that the U.S. mail is probably not the best medium by which to deliver uh, results? I mean, look, so agreed. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I mean, they're all. Agree. Let's move forward into the uh, you know the, the 21st century. Surely we can do some encrypted email, something or another, right? But uh, dropping it in the U.S. postal uh, system and um, well. We've all had our experiences with uh, with those kind folks. Yeah, and by the way, I can hear all the well-wishers out there hoping that my biopsy result is normal. So thank you, That's everyone. Right. I appreciate that uh, in advance of your of your um, well-wishing, well-wishes. So here, unfortunately, this patient had not a neutral outcome. It was a bad outcome. Um, after the prostatectomy, there was urinary leakage and erectile dysfunction. Now, those are both known risks of a prostatectomy, and, but they're not particularly common. Of course, if it happens to you, it's 100% to you. So here, it was a problem that was compounded. Now, had had the patient had an okay outcome, meaning zero complications, he still would have had a cause of action for having had surgery when he didn't need to. I mean, now he's without his prostate. Does he need his prostate? I mean, arguably, a um, well, the argument can be made that it spared him from getting prostate cancer down the road, <laughs> but I, I think that that would be a very weak argument. Um, I think that he would be making the argument that he had to experience the pain, suffering, and agony of a condition when he had zero risk uh, of that diagnosis, at least in the near term, at all. So I don't see that as a winning defendant argument, do you? No, I I don't um, I don't th think so. Then of course, what that leads to is well, then what else can we remove so you might not have a problem down the road, right? <laughs> I mean, how about just one of the two kidneys? Well, that's yeah, the exactly. right one that might have. I mean, that's just not. You really need happen. both. Do you really need both? <laughs> yeah, that, well, the that's right. That's the risk factor of that left kidney. Let's take it. So yeah, no, no, no go on that argument. I don't think. So uh, going forward, the thing that also interested me was that um, the the protagonist in this unfortunate story was also worried that the true owner of the prostate, um, where the sample came from, actually had a diagnosis uh, of cancer, but he had been given the all clear sign. Um, so it's interesting. You can almost see this one case morphing into two separate lawsuits, two victims. The first victim had unnecessary surgery. Uh, surgery. The second victim had failure to diagnose and more accurately delay in diagnosis. Um, I wonder with that second victim with a delay in diagnosis, it almost certainly was not um, 
dispositive of an outcome, meaning that if there was a, let's say the delay was four months, um, it, it's very possible, indeed likely, that that delay in four months really had no impact on the clinical outcome of the um, of uh, of the cancer, if you will. And if that's true, and I don't know that in this particular case, but assume for the moment that it is true, I don't know that that second person would prevail in litigation. What are your thoughts? I mean, it's given the all clear sign that getting a diagnosis of cancer is certainly problematic. Um, we can agree that that's a violation of the standard of care as to whether it caused some type of damage. I don't know the answer to that. It's not entirely clear to me that there's just one other person. I mean, you could imagine a lab processing multiple samples, mm -hmm. um, biopsy samples in an afternoon or a day. Right. And how do you know which one it was switched with? Uh, this creates a major problem. Do we call people back in to be another bi? I, I don't know if I have a good way of, of handling that. But as to your question about um, if the delay didn't really impact treatment or ultimate uh, outcome, uh, you're, you're right, that wouldn't necessarily um, support a medical malpractice claim, but I will tell you that it will uh, play quite well to a jury, right? Yeah, um, in the In the general population, the idea that you should have been diagnosed many months before and that someone made a mistake uh, people want to uh, to believe that earlier diagnoses result in um, in better outcomes. We all know that that's not necessarily the truth, but that's what I think the public wants to believe. Yeah, one could argue perhaps that if the other patient had surgery, he would have been burdened by um, an earlier uh, complication of urinary leakage and erectile dysfunction. But um, Again, to your point, I'm not sure you want to make that argument to a jury. And my guess is this will settle. I, I, my guess is I both so. of these cases will settle. I think there's already been, and the fact that we're talking about it means that it's already hit the media. And I think this is the type of case you want out of the media. So if you, if everybody could be made happy, uh, I'm going to take an educated guess. That will be the likely trajectory of this one or perhaps the second case. I still don't know if the second case uh, has been filed. Now, What's, one of the, oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry, I, I'd like to talk about this idea of a second opinion. Would it have made, and mm -hmm. I, I don't have the medical background that you do, but would there necessarily have been a second biopsy? Would the, the second opinion be based off of the, the PATH report that the first physician had? I think that's, I, I kind of agree with you. I'm I'm not sure that a second opinion would have changed anything other than perhaps broadly counseling uh, patients. I mean, it is not uncommon for um, prostate cancer to get a, you know, for the same type of prostate cancer to be given uh, two or three different treatment options. One may be, depending upon how old the patient is, how healthy or sick the patient is, uh, to be patient, meaning that you you may very well die from you know from just normal life, just because of your actuary your your position on an actuarial table, as opposed to dying from prostate cancer. So I mean, there's the fact that you have prostate cancer isn't necessarily a death sentence. You may actually die of other uh, of another cause. Um, in this particular case. 
I don't think that this patient was elderly. I don't know that. I, I do know he was married and has five children. I'm going to guess he was probably in his 40s or 50s. I don't know that. Given that he had a PSA level, maybe he was in his 50s. I don't know. But, you know, one would one might have also argued that you'd follow him over time just to see what the you know trajectory of this particular cancer was. So it may not have been particularly aggressive. And candidly, I mean, we see this all the time. One surgeon will counsel a more aggressive treatment plan. Another surgeon will counsel patients and say, let's just see how this plays out over the next several months to, to a year. So I, I cannot say with certainty that just getting a second opinion would have made any difference uh, whatsoever. And particularly if they were trying to make a decision based on a faulty microscopic slide that nobody really knew was faulty at the time. I think they only learned of the underlying problem when they took out the, um, the prostate uh, from, from the plaintiff and learned, hey, there's nothing in here that speaks of cancer. It's a normal prostate exam. And it may very well be that the prostate itself, um, you know, had a normal size. I don't know. There are a thousand things that could enter into this equation. And it's hard to argue with why not get a second opinion. Sure. I mean, if somebody's about to have surgery, having a second opinion gets the patient comfortable. They're on the right trajectory. Even, you know, even if it's inevitable that every surgeon would say you should have surgery. So I'm not, not opposed to recommending a second opinion. I'm just not sure that would have really change the um the outcome in this particular case Agreed. so uh, moving on to our next talking point uh, of this so psa is a screening test um are, and some people even suggest that you know in 2021 as we move into 2022 that the utility of psa may be suspect meaning that the bang you get for the buck in terms of doing it may not be particularly helpful, but screening tests are are here for the foreseeable uh, future. And the challenge with a screening test is that you're casting a wide net. You want to, it's a screening test. You're trying to see who has the potential for this particular problem. And then once you see who has the potential, then you, you know, you hone in to see who really has it. So the first step is the potential disease. The second step is who has the actual disease. Um, so what does that mean? It means that you're going to get false positives. Um, you definitely do not want to get a false negative, a false negative where um, you're being led to believe the coast is clear. You don't have cancer, for example, but indeed you do have cancer. False negatives are generally worse than false positives. So false negatives are generally worse than uh, false positive. Why? Because normally a positive test is followed up with a more definitive test. So, for example, mammography, if it's positive, is often followed with MR or ultrasound or even breast biopsy. But it's, you know, rarely does one go straight to lumpectomy or mastectomy. If you get a biopsy and it's positive, you're typically getting a second test to confirm the diagnosis. And often it's negative. Why? Because it's a false positive. So it's great news uh, for the patient. So if somebody gets a, um, a, you know, ultimately goes to a biopsy and it's negative, everybody slaps each other uh, with high fives. If you get a positive screening HIV test and follow up quickly reveals that it's a false positive, everybody 
It's a sigh of relief. And I, I'm reminded by a quote from Winston Churchill, and I, I love Winston Churchill quotes. We could probably spend hours just, just, just um, repeating his words of wisdom. But one thing that he said that I like to repeat frequently, Winston Churchill said, there's nothing so exhilarating as being shot at without effect. Nothing so exhilarating as being shot at without effect. And I think it kind of exemplifies what happens when you get a positive test that means you may have cancer, and then it's just a screening test, turns out to be a false positive. The confirmatory next step demonstrates that, hey, it's negative, no need to worry. So I think the, the lessons here include you definitely do not want a false negative, meaning if you do a biopsy and learn that it's negative and later the patient develops cancer, false negative, that's really bad. And um, it's bad because frequently as the cancer develops, it may go from treatable or even curable to life-threatening or create mortality. Uh, and those are hard to defend against um, in the professional liability world. But here, it was a little bit different. It was a false positive. Um, but instead of kind of moving to some type of confirmatory testing, if one was even available, a definitive irreversible step was taken. The patient had a radical prostatectomy. Um, so instead of the usual high fives you would get after delivering the news, there's no cancer, um, it was this was counterbalanced by the realization that this patient was leaking urine and impotent. I think we can all agree not not a great outcome. No. Any uh, final words of wisdom, uh, Mike? Just to sum up, I, I think that you always want to double check um, abnormal lab results to make sure you're dealing with the proper patient and and the proper clinical history. If anything, um, anything seems off call the lab. If you can repeat a test, if it's a blood test, I would repeat it just to make sure you, you're not dealing with um, a lab error. And um, just remember, there are some paths that you can't, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. So once you've committed to an operative procedure, you are also committed to the potential complications from that procedure. Um, sometimes waiting and watching is a good if not great course of action so that's well, um yeah i think yeah. that's all we have from this prostate case um, as we learn more in terms of the legal outcome of this one and potentially two cases we will report back but until then thanks so much for joining us today for another episode of the medical liability minute and with that we're at the end of our broadcast thanks for joining us in closing a few messages if you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, 
you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N, Epson Frank O, news, at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.